economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael. So today, uh, we have an interview with uh, Dr. Brandon McFadden. Dr. McFadden is uh, originally from Arkansas. He has a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from the University of Arkansas, and a PhD uh, from Oklahoma State University in agricultural economics. I know Brandon. Uh, Brandon's a uh, I know Brandon from my time as an ag economist. Brandon uh, is currently an assistant professor in the Applied Economics and Statistics Department at the University of Delaware, and his research interests are in food choice and perceptions of food. And what we're going to talk today about is uh, nutritional insecurity and food insecurity and, and how that's tied into poverty. And so, you know, one of our big themes here at the Gortney Institute is, you know, poverty sucks. And <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah, Russ, Russ likes the, uh, one of our rallying cries there. And so <laughs> we had an interview recently about, you know, welfare programs and uh, the food programs and stuff like that. And I think what would be interesting is to think more about does poverty really affect people's, um, you know, food choices and, and dig into that a lot more and talk about kind of some of these new concepts like, uh, nutritional insecurity or food insecurity, uh, because we don't we don't talk so much. I think about people just not having any food at all, which you know I think it's a testament to the progress you know that you make with markets and and capitalism and things like that. Um, but we've kind of moved and, and use I think some different terms, and I'm and I'm sure uh, Dr. McFadden's going to make that a lot clearer about how all that works and what it what those things mean to mean today and what's really driving nutritional and food insecurity. So I guess Dr. McFadden, if you want to start us off, you know, what, what do these terms mean? Nutritional insecurity and, and, um, and food insecurity, what do those mean? Yeah, sure. So, so food security is pretty, it's pretty well defined uh, by the USDA. And so food security is, you know, no reported indications of food access problems or limitations. And so when we talk about the other side of that, which is, you know, food insecurity, typically, you know, the, this is defined in two ways. So one is food insecurity uh, without hunger. So this has to do with reports of, uh, you know, reduced quality, variety, or desirability of diet. But there's not really any indication of reduced food intake, right? The person is still getting enough calories for energy requirements. Um, and the other uh, food insecurity is uh, food insecurity with hunger. So, uh, you know, this is reports of uh, problems with, you know, even getting enough calories. So it goes beyond kind of what you would think about, uh, uh, you know, about getting enough fruits and vegetables, but really just also, um, you know, having the uh, signs of hunger. Okay. And it's all at the individual level. So we look at food insecurity in a, in a state or a county or whatever, and it's through survey data, how many individuals are reporting that? Is that how it works? Yeah, correct, okay. correct. And so typically about 12% of the U.S. population uh, suffers from, you, uh, from, from food insecurity. Uh, we did see that number increase slightly, so around 15% around the Great Recession, 
but it's since dropped back down to around 12%. And so, you know, right, a little over, a little over 10%. And, and that, that number, that 12% number I gave you, that includes both food, food insecurity with hunger and without. Which makes and, sense, counter, counter cyclical with, uh, with the economy. So a growing economy that we're experiencing less food insecurity. So would you say that, you know, like when we think about, uh, again, you know, one of our big themes is poverty. And so when you think about, you know, nutritionally related issues for folks that are maybe they're the working poor or maybe they're not able to work or, uh, you know, finding themselves in a bad situation at the current time or whatever, what are the nutritional challenges or, or the food related challenges that people have? Uh, is, is that a, is this a significant, you know, is not having enough food a big concern for people when they're, you know, not doing well financially or how, how does that work with obesity and, and, and all of that, that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, in the, in the U S at least, obviously if somebody doesn't have enough income, you know, we, we do have some programs that help out with that. And I believe I'm sure you remember from your ag econ days that actually most of the farm bill. So when I think when generally when people think of the farm bill, they think of a lot of money going kind of to farmers or commodities, different commodities, but really most of the farm bill is actually directed towards nutrition. And um, that will go, it's kind of split among different programs, but the two largest ones are the supplemental nutrition assistance program. So the SNAP program, and then also uh, the uh, school lunch program. And so we do have some things that assist people uh, with lower income uh, to get enough calories. You know, there's also a pretty large food bank network in the U S but they've recently, there's been some indication recently that, that, that they are feeling some pains and that they do need some more help. But it is, it is kind of interesting when we think about dietary quality, we really see uh, dietary, poor dietary quality essentially at every income category. The challenges are different for low-income families, but all families in the U.S. don't have all, you know, what you would say uh, the greatest diet. Right. So is it, is it not a, uh, a, a real great place? I mean, I, I'm just starting to doubt the wisdom of having government intervention when it comes to quality. It's more important to focus in on calories rather than nutritional quality. Is that kind of what I'm hearing since the evidence doesn't really show across, you know, uh, higher income people eat like crap and so do the poor. So let's not spend a bunch of government dollars, scarce dollars on, on trying to promote nutritional security or I'm not sure I'm using the right words, but is, yeah, is sure. that what kind of uh, some of the conclusions or. So the USDA provides information in the form of like, different food categories, right? So if you think about what's like my plate or, you know, when we, when I was younger, the, the food pyramid, right? So we have these, these groups and we're supposed to, you know, we have recommended values that we're supposed to intake and, you know, we, we don't follow those very well. And then you think about the other way we kind of per, try to provide information uh, is through the FDA is through the, uh, the nutrition facts panel that you see on the back of foods. And so, you know, we have some government intervention in that way. We're trying to provide information, but it's not clear that that's very effective. Um, right. And there has been some discussion about things like, what should we do with this, you know, supplemental nutrition assistant program, right? There are some already rules in place for, for people using those benefits. 
like they can't uh, buy, you know, prepared food, you know, food that's warm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's been some discussion about, you know, maybe directing those dollars, like forcing people to buy certain foods. It's not clear that that would really be effective because most people who are receiving those benefits, I should say really almost all of them, their food budget is, is higher than the benefits they receive. It would be, you know, the money, the money there is still very fungible. Yeah. Right? So right. people could to still use the benefits for some some things and the things so it would just make it kind of the transaction cost more you know a little bit more difficult a little higher transaction costs but almost zero so when you say transaction costs so what you mean by that is that if they 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 get some benefits on a card or something like that and they can just sort of uh they they there's sort of a secondary market where they can trade those benefits for cash or whatever and they can spend the cash on something else then is that oh, that, that's a possibility. Across? That's a possibility. But more, I was I was saying like, um, um, essentially, they're still <laughs> spending some of their uh, other discretionary income on food, and so oh, okay. they could just split right, right. That, 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 those monies that they're out of their buy the things that wouldn't be allowed. I see. Okay. So as far as so when we think about things like you know the obesity issue and and this food security issue, because I you know it kind of seems like we've you know, when we look worldwide, you know, there's, you know, we've got obesity issues in the U.S. because people, they have plenty of resources to buy the calories they need, and they're just not getting necessarily the correct ones as defined by, um, you know, the experts that work for the USDA or the FDA. But when we think about this more broadly, and we, we look at, you know, countries where people are starving and, and stuff like that. So would you say that the sort of food security becomes, uh, is, is something we sort of more traditionally associate with poverty where we just don't have enough money to buy the food we need in general. We're at kind of a subsistence level of, of living. So is that, yeah. is that how you would contrast that between? Absolutely. The US yeah, and- absolutely. So, so kind of when you think about, I guess you think, you know, nutrition security or, or dietary quality. So, you know, kind of what we're talking about obesity, we're talking about malnutrition, right? And so there's kind of two forms of malnutrition. There's, there's overnutrition, which is obesity, and then there's undernutrition, which I, you know, is kind of what I think we typically think of, about, right, when we think about things like nutrition security. And, yeah, so the undernutrition is really the problem, right, in, in the developing world. Um, and so we see problems with, you know, one, not getting enough calorie, but even a lot of those calories are, you know, pretty void of, uh, of nutrition, right? So a diet heavy in rice doesn't have a lot of um, macro or micronutrients. I see. The same could be of overnutrition, right? Uh, it's just a little different because enough calories are getting um, consumed, but just it can still be, you know, nutrient poor. And, and that's often what people refer to as hidden hunger. I see. Would, uh, on the international front, from a policy standpoint, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking what, what should be done do we do we continue to funnel private funds or is there a step up for uh government action or un action or the united states contributing to that i mean what what's your thoughts that way with yeah so so the un actually does have um what are called sustainable development goals so the un has kind of set goals for different regions um where we see a lot of problems are sub-saharan africa and uh south south southern or southeast asia and so they have goals and there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, groups working towards that goal. And some like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does a lot of work in this area. And it's kind of mixed, right? There was 
I mean, I, I don't do like a lot of development work. That's but there was a, you know, some discussions recently. I guess last year maybe, because funny enough, Bill Gates said you know we should essentially give everybody a a, a chicken or a few chickens, and then there was some discussion between so you know some other development economists that really what we should be just doing is tr cash transfer, right? Cash transfers instead of giving everybody chickens. But so there's been some discussion there, but. Working in those areas is kind of what piqued my interest because uh, I often work with food technology. Um, so I was I was thinking I was doing I was what kind of got my interest in in this nutrition area at first. I had a student, a grad student from Tanzania, and they really wanted the funders of the project wanted something done on uh, rice or, or maize. And so I thought, well, let's let's think about something going on with golden rice. Which if if you don't know what golden rice is, it's it's essentially a GMO rice that has added uh, beta carotene. Soon, mm. beta carotene, your body converts so it supplements to, to vitamin it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's essentially it, it's yeah. That's exactly it. It's it's like a, a biofortified kind of through through breeding, right? And so and so we did some work there, and kind of the interesting thing that I I think I learned is and that I really didn't have enough appreciation for and that's why I think sometimes these you know the information we get from the USDA or FDA might not always be that effective is because you know there's a lot of reasons we eat what we eat right and so just just kind of some stories from when I was there I, I was I was with a young farmer and he had quite a bit of land that he had rented and he was farming and so I asked him I was like well what are you growing I, I assumed he was going to be growing you know several different right just to kind of diversify risk and, um, but no, he grew, he grew all rice. And I said, okay, okay, well, you know, how many, how many varieties are you growing? Cause again, I'm thinking risk diversification <laughs> and, and, and he says one variety. And I thought, wow, really all one variety. And, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, why just one? He said, cause that's what the people here eat. And so, you know, there are issues with infrastructure, right? So that it's hard to move uh, commodity is very far. And so, you know, he's very focused on what people there ate and really they ate one variety of rice. So still I thought, well, okay, well, and, and at that point I thought, well, this is probably like infrastructure issues, right? More, more than kind of just food choice. But then later that day, we, we stopped by a roadside. Some people were roasting corn. So they're roasting maize right on the roadside. And uh, we get a piece of corn. We, I get an ear of corn and, and it's really white. And it's and it's not very sweet. And you know, I'm I'm from I'm from the south. And when right, I, you like your sweet corn, you know. So I, I started I started I started thinking about this. You know, I like what my grandparents and my parents fed me, and we would have you know sweet corn with a lot of butter and a lot of salt, right? And what they were eating was you know very it was a more white. And then this is where it really it, it kind of dawned on me. So the beta carotene that's in golden rice is taken from corn. So that beta carotene is taken from corn and, and put it and put, so that's why it gets that yellow color, right? So like that sweet corn is really high in beta carotene. Uh -huh. So it dawned on me, I thought, my gosh, I'm here trying to work on a project, understanding food choice and, and their acceptance, you know, people's acceptance of this rice that's yellow and they're not, and you know. The, and the, they don't the want it. <laughs> isn't even yellow. Yeah, huh. yeah that's interesting. All right, well, that looks like a good time for our break, and we'll uh, get a few words in and, and uh, continue this discussion afterwards.
please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, and we're back here with uh, Brandon. I got a follow-up question for you. This might be kind of a little bit out of left field, but I couldn't help but think about it. Is it possible on some of the survey data that I'm thinking if I'm a poor person and I want to, and I'm hungry and I want to get some food, or I, I shouldn't have said it that way that I'm hungry, but because uh, I kind of blew my point. But <laughs> is it possible that some of the data, like there's an incentive for the person who's responding to the survey uh, to claim that they're hungry when they're they're hungry when they're really not, to try to potentially um, garner additional benefits somehow. I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, to be honest, I'm not really sure how it's worded in the survey. I don't think it's something that it's. I know it's something separate from like the application of the benefit. Uh huh. But you're right. If somebody is receiving benefits or wants to receive benefits, it could be possible that they think they might be more likely to see, receive benefits or more benefits. But I, I would really have to look over the survey and really know more about the data collection. So all that to say, I, I don't think I know enough to really say one way or another. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I think it's just fun for our listeners to think about the way us economists think like uh, incentives matter and maybe, maybe there would be potentially some bias. But at the same time, I know a lot of people who design those things, they put a lot of care and concern into, you know, how it's worded and then maybe attempt to eliminate some of that. So. Yeah. Because like, you know, we, uh, we often include like when we're trying to understand willingness to pay, we sometimes see hypothetical bias where people say they'll pay more for something than they really would when you're right. doing it on a survey or something. Right. Yeah. So we might use something that's called like cheap talk where we tell people, literally we just tell them, you know, we found that people often do this. Please don't. <laughs> right. And so, uh, yeah, priming them. And a so there, bit. Right. And, and there could be something in, in the, you know, if I were to look at the actual instrument, it might say in there, you know, this is not directly tied to your benefits. Yeah. But I don't know that. Right. So our next uh, question up here. So, you know, you talked about diet quality issues, you know, that it doesn't really have much to do with, you know, how, how much, you know, money you have. Right. So, you know, rich folks have poor diets and, and people with limited resources have poor diets. So what, what do you think it does drive that? Is it, I mean, do we just kind of, you know, wave, wave a wand of, you know, individual preferences at the thing? Or is there, do we know much about the details of what, what drives people to, you know, ignore, you know, the, I guess when I was a kid, it, you know, I guess when you and I were kids, it was the, the food guide pyramid and now we've got my plate 
you know, is there a reason do we know much about why people ignore that stuff? And they're, they're, you know, they've come off of the, the quote unquote optimal, you know, diet or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have a lot of different relationships with food, right. And kind of the often the way we we're talking about it now. And when we talk kind of about it, like in nutrition security, we almost talk about it as if it's just, and you know, for energy. Right. And, and that's not really how we deal with food. Right. Like I said, we, we really have, first we have kind of cultural attachments to food. And then if you think about, you know, we also have things about food that, that were, that, for instance, in family gatherings, right, uh, or even holidays, right? Chick- I'm thinking chicken around. wings and beer for the football game, maybe, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or the holidays, you know, we have these great holidays. If you think about it, it's very centered around meals, right, or multiple yeah. meals. And so, and so the relationship we have with food is very complex. And, and, you know, one thing, too, I think that's important to know, a lot of the data we're talking about and looking at is really focusing on food at home, right? Now half of our budget is spent at food away from home, which, you know, it's harder to get your hands on that data because it's a little bit more proprietary. But, you know, that's something important to, to kind of keep in mind. But when we look at food at home, at one point, the idea of especially food access, like the availability of, you know, the, the proximity to grocery stores, the availability of different types of food within a grocery store, not too long ago, that was that was kind of a big deal, right? And that was a focus of a lot of research. And I'm looking at some stuff from the USDA, and, and it's, this says since 2011, the federal government spent almost $500 million to improve food store access in neighborhoods lacking large, well-stocked grocery stores. And so there were some hmm. early studies kind of with small samples that seemed to indicate that, you know, it's really about food availability. But there's this recent report that kind of has come out from the USDA, uh, which, which is kind of telling in my mind that some of these results are coming from the USDA and, you know, they preface kind of this release with talking about how much the federal government has spent, right. Mm-hmm. On studying this. But what they found is that people often uh, travel, you know, farther than the nearest store to get groceries. So I know, um, so I just recently moved to Delaware and we actually drive all the way into Pennsylvania to a, a, a Wegmans uh, <laughs> grocery store. Right. And so we drive by, I mean, I can literally, actually, I live a block from a grocery store, but I drive 20 minutes to a grocery store because <laughs> I like it. And right. what, what the USDA has found is that not only do I do that, but people who don't even have uh, their own vehicle use public transportation or often walk uh, farther than the, you know, the closest that right? <laughs> yeah, grocery store. And That's this is even true of people who are receiving SNAP benefits. Yeah. Um, so not only is food complex and the culture and beer and chicken wings for football and Thanksgiving, but then our choice of where we buy our food is a little counterintuitive with being want, being willing to drive further than the nearest place. Yeah, I think if the average listener were to really think about what the closest grocery store is to them, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the average listener is nodding their head saying, yes, I drive by several other stores to go to there. That's the I prefer <laughs> As you're speaking, uh, Jason, our graduate assistant, is nodding her head. Like, as soon as you said nodding, her, some of our listeners are nodding <laughs> their heads. She's sitting there nodding her head, so that was funny. <laughs> but, and if we use the USDA, those guidelines, kind of, if we were to use it and make an index, right, where like 100 is, you know, essentially meeting all those, those recommendations, right? If you look at household income, uh, the highest, you know, the highest uh, – income earners 
are right, right, right above 50. So they're just barely over halfway meeting, right? The, the dietary recommendations, the lowest income category are like about, are just below 50. And, and if you look at, even if you look across categories, you don't see, at least with this USDA data that I'm looking at, you don't see a lot of difference between consumptions as far as like dairy products or meat, poultry, fish, eggs. Now, within those categories, you might see, you know, if we were to, if we we're able to drill down a little bit better, we might see some differences, right? Like you might see low income eating more ground beef and higher income households eating more yeah. steak or yeah. something the like elasticities that. Elasticities might vary across some of those things. I mean, that's the, right. my principal's class, the milk, like whether you're poor or whether you're rich, you still have a bowl of cereal and you, you drink about the same amount of milk, uh, regardless of your income and other things right. might be different. That's interesting. Yeah, so, so there's definitely some income elasticities <laughs> with some of these products, right? And, and and that is true, especially with fruits and vegetables in a sense. But it, it, the fruits and vegetables data is a little hard to get into. I've tried to dig into some of it, like through Nielsen data and things like that. It's kind of hard to get into because it's still difficult to measure purchases of like, of like for instance, three apples, right? So you can get good data on like someone purchasing a bag of apples, but most people purchase, you know, by weight, right? So same thing. Uh, it's also hard to get data on like purchases at the meat counter. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about that. Yeah. So then, so you're saying like the prepackaged stuff that you buy, or the the stuff that's packaged at the store that maybe even is ground at the store, that that we don't have data on that. Like when you just go, or are you talking about when you actually walk up to the counter and ask them for something special? Yeah. No, yeah. When you walk up to the counter, so if it's if it's okay. packaged, then it then um, then it's a little easier. What's difficult is you'll see uh, like essentially something from this section was purchased at this price, right? But you don't know the you don't know like the weight. Um, well, so and I would guess that like the first example you gave, which was the produce side, that would kind of be a general thing where you know most people are going to buy their stuff by weight. But I mean, right. you know, I think about the, the times that I go to the counter and ask for something, that's usually when I'm buying something more expensive. You know, even, even the data that we have might have a bias in, in, in terms of our ability to actually measure it, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, yeah, for, yeah. I mean, the average person who's just going to buy some ground beef, I mean, you're not going to go to the counter for that. You know, you're going to no. go to the counter if you want like a really nice steak or something like that. Right. So as, as we kind of wrap up then... Brandon, what, you know, we, we think about, you know, nutritional insecurity and we think about how, uh, you know, this, a lot of this has to do with our, more has to do with preferences and, and stuff like that and sort of deviations from, you know, my plate and that kind of thing. What do you think a, a, a Christian would, ha- would say about this? You know, what, what, what should a Christian do? I guess we haven't talked much about the religious components here, uh, like we did last time when we were talking about a lot of the <laughs> programs, but as far as like being an effective way to, to help people make better choices with their food, do you think, you know, government programs or, or more private efforts or a mix of the two, what do you think is, is a good way to go with that? So I think, so it, I mean, right. If, if I, if I knew the answer to this, right, I would, I would definitely just be working on, on this answer. I mean, this is a, right. It's a tough question. Sure. And so really, really what the in a sense, really what the question is, is how do you make society make large changes? <laughs> and, okay. um, and, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I will say that we do have, you know, I think we see examples of society making large changes 
the example I usually like to offer is like smoking, right? It wasn't that long ago that we were smoking at a lot higher rates. And at some you know point, we kind of realized, look, we probably should smoke less. And we see society kind of make a change. And, and so I think that can happen with nutrition. I think it's probably best to focus efforts on, on the younger generation. Okay. And I think that's where a lot of the headway has been made in, in changing smoking habits. I think there are, places, there are ways, though, that people can get involved. And, and it, maybe not so much in the nutrition security, maybe more on the food security side, right? So, of course, there are local food banks, and often churches do a, a great job of that, of, of helping with local food banks. But often, too, and this, a lot of people, I, I don't know, know about these programs, but there's often uh, backpack programs uh, in public schools for kids. Because right. a lot of the kids, like I said, you know, uh, some of that money that comes, uh, the farm bill is for the national school lunch program, right? And so that's it's great because we know, you know, the kids are getting fed something during the day, right? There are, there are some kids who go home on the weekend and they might not get a lot of meals on the weekend. Right. And so there are, there are <laughs> programs through schools where they send kids home with food yeah. in the backpack for the weekend. And so I think that's another great thing that could help uh, with food security, especially for kids. But otherwise, I mean, my takeaway from this might be, and I might be completely skewed, but <laughs> I'm not seeing a big problem with nutritional security that we should be spending federal dollars attacking because the private sector <laughs> would probably find out ways to dodge that anyway. So when we look at using public funds to address the nutritional soundness of the poor, they're not making choices any better or worse than other income strata. So let's just leave it alone. And if, if Christians have a problem with nutritional insecurity, then let's use private sector hands. If it's a big enough rallying cry, then let's just use voluntary efforts to try to address the problem. Am I being too yeah. uh, free market oriented there? Or is that? Is that... I, I, don't, I don't think so because, I mean, in a way, that's often my response when I hear thing about, things about like access in certain mm -hmm. areas to, to healthy foods. I think if there was a demand, I imagine that somebody would, would, would meet that. And, you know, if it's truly just a missing market, right? Right. Like, so the question is, are, are certain places not stocking much fruits and vegetables because they can't, you know, th there's a problem with just, the, the the supply chain right so it's just difficult maybe in some of these smaller stores to get it is that that you know these things are perishable so there people aren't buying enough of them but i i have seen brilliant market responses and i haven't checked on it in a while but at one time there were starting to be things like uh, moving produce stands so like i saw an example of somebody in an urban area who bought a bus and essentially made it a moving produce stand, produce stand. So they would go to different neighborhoods or different oh, areas. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, so I think there are examples already of, of good market responses. Yeah. It would be, I would be curious to, you know, to know how, you know, that has, has worked over time, but you know, I, I would imagine if it was successful, then they would probably add another bus. Right. Yeah. So I, I definitely think there are still room for market responses. But I, I think that's something that's often missed when, when people kind of talk about food system and, and we're not, you know, supplying enough of these fruits and vegetables. Because um, even, you know, in my neighborhood, I'm, grocery stores I go to, rarely do I see apples off the shelf, right? There's yeah. typically a supply. So it's more of a demand side thing. And so it, it does become difficult 
And uh, let's all really face it, a bag of Cheetos is just sometimes better than an apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, well, thanks a lot for your time, Dr. McFadden. And uh, if, if people want to follow you, I guess they would go to at uh, McFadden Ag Econ on Twitter. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. All right, cool. Okay, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes for today. Um, but thanks again uh, for sharing your expertise on, on uh, this important stuff. And we hope to hear from you sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Brandon.